Hello, 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 and welcome back to Netflix, Coffee, and Questioning Humanity. I am back and I am sober and we are here to talk about you season three every episode. So if you don't want spoilers, please check the description box. I have timestamps so that you don't have to miss out on, you know, the entire episode. But yes, all the spoilers. If you haven't binged it yet, get your life together. Obviously, I'm kidding, but really get your life together. I also wanted to wait, but I am finally talking about the morning show and I'm talking about it in bulk because it didn't really pick up steam until now, but I am enjoying it. It's very different than season one, but I'm gonna tell you all my thoughts on that. In addition to The Morning Show and You Season 3, I watched The Guilty, and I think I have an unpopular opinion about this movie. Oh, and I watched the worst effing thing I have ever seen on Netflix in my entire Netflixing life, okay? And I need to share my thoughts on that as well. It'll be brief, but it'll be great. I'm like bubbling over with excitement to talk about all of these things. I need to talk about the things, so let's get into it. Friendly reminder that this is an explicit podcast, which means I may discuss explicit content while most certainly using explicit language. So little ears, those easily offended, my mom and dad, and anyone who has not seen every episode of You Season 3, you have been warned yet again. You want to bow out, I promise. Now on with the show. I gotta be honest, you can tell a little bit, I'm sure you could tell in the last episode a bit, I have like a little bit of an ick in my voice more than usual. So I have cheated on my coffee and I am drinking tea because it just makes me feel so much better. So yeah, I'm quite boring today. I'm drinking just tea with honey and milk and oh, I have a Gatorade. Gatorade isn't caffeinated, is it? What the fuck is up with Gatorade? No, it's just like full of sugar. Anyway, yeah, boring coffee segment. I apologize, but my stomach couldn't handle coffee today. But something my stomach could handle, Joe Goldberg and his antics. This is your third, maybe even your fourth and final warning because I know most of you are into the show you. Male, female, anyone in between, everyone watches you and rightfully so. It's amazing. There is no shame in it. There is no shame, okay? The only shame that you need to have is if you watch Riverdale, okay? Which none of my listeners do, I would hope. First off, I wanna share the news that you season three premiered what like a week ago but within 24 hours of its premiere the series quickly jumped into the top spot on Netflix moving Squid Game into the number two position. Just wanted to share that update. Now let's discuss. And yes, this is going to be a deep dive. We start off season three. Oh, I just had a burp, but like no sound came out. Oh, there it is. Okay. The lady in me just left my body because ladies don't burp. Such bullshit. Anyway, season three. Now I'm going to start. We start with Joe and Love who have relocated to a suburban hell because of the neighborhood safety and school system for their new bundle of joy. Henry. And Joe is quickly learning that parenthood, especially these early stages, is not as cute as the flowery books he has read. 
The people in their new town, Madre Linda, are every boring stereotype you can possibly find on Instagram these days. Mommy bloggers and keto bloggers and health bloggers and all the bloggers and all the people that think their life is so important that they need to monetize it and tell everyone the almonds they're eating and recommend them and tell everyone the diapers that their babies shit in because it's just so important for the world. It's not long before Joe is drawn to a lonely, neglected housewife looking for some fun. After Love finds out about Joe's newest obsession with her, she does the only logical thing. She slashes her with an axe, and thus the never-ending murder spree begins quite early in the season. Now, obviously, Joe is turned off by this murderous behavior. He can be the only murderer in the family. He murders with morals. Does that even make sense? I mean, like, linguistically, does that make sense? I don't know if I even used that word properly. But he's got a code, okay? When he murders, he murders for a reason. Love is just a maniac in his mind. But regardless, he finds himself quickly falling out of love with his wife because of her murderous antics. Joe and Love go to couples therapy, covertly, of course, because you can't really explain your wife's jealousy hits its peak via an axe to the neck of the woman you were trying to smash. That wouldn't go over well. By the time the third episode rolls around, Joe and Love clean up the intricate mess of the murder. The woman who was killed, Natalie, was married to a pioneer in the tech field. He can hack cameras and all that crazy shit and even has this GPS ring with heart rate and location, etc., etc., everything your fucking phone has. Just in a ring. So they had to be extra covert and extra smart when disposing her body. Love also begins a strange relationship with a college kid. He's like 19, I think, in the show. His name is Theo, and to make things even more strange and complicated, this college kid is the stepson of the woman she murdered. Oh yeah, and he also has a massive crush on her. Who doesn't love a MILF? Joe strangely finds himself in a library with a librarian, of course, who he slowly builds an attraction for. Well, attraction is not the word to use with Joe. More like obsession, because Joe doesn't know attraction. Everything is steal her panties and stalk her kind of attraction, which isn't really attraction at all, really, is it? I mean, I guess it's a type of attraction. I've said that word too many times. It's now starting to sound weird. Anyways, he's also doing the stealing and the bootlegging rare books that we seen him do last season and sending the prophet to Ellie, who we never see in this season. We have no idea what's going on with her, which is very odd. I'll give my thoughts on that at the end. Little baby Henry ends up getting the measles this season and love and Joe fear for his life. Understandably, they're not being crazy there, but he makes a full and healthy recovery. When Love makes her return to work once the baby is happy and healthy at home, Gil, the happy-go-lucky neighbor, comes to apologize to Love for exposing Henry via his unvaccinated children. These things happen, folks, just saying. So the ever-rational Love, understandably upset and protective of her dear son, whips him unconscious with, I believe it was a rolling pin, and Joe locks him in the infamous Joe Goldberg cage in the basement of Love's new bakery. Oh yeah, I forgot to mention that. She bought a bakery called A Fresh Tart. How cute. And it's really funny because the whole neighborhood is like sugar-free and keto and raw. So a bakery is just ironic and I love that. 
So Gil is awake in the cage now. He was just knocked unconscious. And Joe tries to come up with a deal to let him go free, but Gil isn't really biting. They're trying to find some sort of dark secret to hold over his head. So each one of them has dirt on the other, so neither will squeal, you know, that kind of thing. But Gil is clean. That is until Love gets an old family private investigator to dig into some dirt on him and his family. Turns out Gil's son's a dickhead and abused not one, but two girls. And his wife paid off her family. Gil apparently didn't know about the second time. He thought his son was just, you know, a boy being a boy and learned his lesson the first time. So when he found out about the second time and that his wife paid off the family, he was so disturbed, he took his own life while being locked in the cage. Police come around after a few days of Natalie being missing and start this massive search search in the woods. Love has the brilliant sinister plan to kill two birds with one stone, to frame Gil for Natalie's murder, then set up his body at home so it looks like he took his own life in a sort of murder-suicide. Also this season, we see Love feeling unwanted and finds herself lost in the broken and naive Theo, who really weirdly reminds her of her deceased brother, Forty. It's never said, but that's my big takeaway. She loves that he is obsessed with her and gives her unwavering affection and attention. This leads to her having an affair with young Theo and in turn getting knocked up. Meanwhile, Joe is enthralled with the new love of his own and is now red zone obsessed with librarian Marianne. He also in turn becomes obsessed with saving her from her abusive ex and father of her child. He begins to plan a way out of his marriage after sharing a kiss with Marianne because that sealed the deal for him. He's in love. While all of this loving and kissing and crazy and romancing is going on, Theo warns Love that his dad Matthew is all wrapped up in a conspiracy and is convinced Love and Joe are at the center of his wife Natalie's murder. Love continues to use seduction and manipulation to keep Theo on a string to gain intel on what his dad knows. Joe notices Love's flirtations, but he isn't bothered by them, but he knows that he has to act jealous. This way he convinces his wife that he hasn't strayed because she seems to pick up on every little change about his behavior and seems to know when his obsession shifts to a new woman. The not-so-happily-married Quinn Goldbergs are also adjusting to their suburban lifestyle by placing themselves at the center of the robotic, stupid, superficial, bullshit social circle because they believe it will help their marriage and also make them look less suspicious. The social circle has a little spice to it though, okay? This is you. It has to have some sassy, freaky vibes to it. Love's new BFF, Sherry, and her husband, Carrie, share with Love that they are polyamorous and would like to um, take their relationship with the Quinn Goldbergs to the next level and offer the two accept Love happily. And Joe thinks this is an opportunity for his marriage to take a massive decline. He doesn't believe open marriages are the key to success. And that's fine by him. He wants to end it anyway. So the more rapid the decline, the better. He just wants to be wrapped up in Marianne. 
He also realizes how lightly he needs to tread with love and leaving her because her mother shared after being cut off, by the way, for taking the baby on a drunken spin to light a vineyard on fire, that love killed her first husband. If you remember, he had cancer, but we didn't know he was in remission and asked for a divorce. So she killed him. Understandable, right? In her mind, she took care of him. Why would he want a divorce? Come on. So love, Joe, Carrie, and Sherry are having their funsies with suitcases full of dildos and drugs and all the good stuff. These people come prepared. They know how to party. And Love notices Joe's mind wandering. And she knows in that moment, Joe isn't thinking about her or anyone involved in the swing fest. And she loses it, safe word and all. She is also really loosey-goosey on some sort of drug and starts freaking out and saying to Joe, I killed Natalie for you. Being the stereotypical nosy neighbors they are, Carrie and Sherry were eavesdropping on this and Joe and Love heard them slip away. Obviously, they can't be trusted with the information they have just heard. And after a brutal bit of fighting, Sherry and Carrie get themselves locked in the infamous cage while still alive. Carrie has a bad wound to the leg, but he's hanging on. I think it's to the leg. He got shot with a bow, I believe. He's injured. That's the whole point. He's bleeding out a little bit. So the two are in a hurry to get the fuck out of that cage. Joe is even more disgusted with love after her little outburst, and he couldn't be more obsessed with Marianne now. So he uh, kills her ex, who is ruining her life and dragging her through the mud with a custody battle. Joe does this because he wants to fix Marianne and her situation and in turn become one big happy family. Meanwhile, Theo is looking for love and finds himself in the basement of her bakery. There, of course, he finds Carrie and Sherry. Carrie and Sherry. Carrie and Sherry. Carrie and Sherry. That's hard to say. Okay, I don't know why I had no trouble up until this point, but here we are. So Theo finds the duo in the basement cage and still doesn't believe love had anything to do with Natalie murder or with them being in a cage. Love finds Theo in the bakery, gets suspicious, notice he has the key to the cage in his hand, and ironically just ends up knocking him down the stairs, thinking she killed him to protect her and Joe's secrets. Bye-bye, Theo. In the finale, Joe goes to clean up yet another body Love has taken out, only to find him still alive, and Joe tells him the truth about Love and her psychotic and manipulative ways. Instead of killing Theo in a rare moment of empathy, Joe brings him to the hospital. Back at the Quinn Goldberg home, Love finds Joe's bloody shirt he wore when he killed Marianne's ex that he staged as a mugging, by the way. She confronts him during a lovely roast dinner after she figures out who the man is and how he's connected to Marianne. And when she finds out he's connected to Marianne, she puts the pieces of the puzzle together and realizes Joe is in love with her. The dinner scene was one of my favorites of the entire series. It was so fucking good. Apparently it was incredibly hard to shoot, which I believe it was tense and the acting was amazing. I thought this was going to be love going all Hannibal Lecter, serving him Marianne with a side of veggies and a nice Chianti. But you know, I was wrong and disappointed a little bit, but not super disappointed for long because it was a great scene, as I mentioned. We get to see how truly insane love is and how much she has distrusted Joe the 
the whole time. She admitted she killed her first husband accidentally though. She gave him too high of a dose of a poison that paralyzes the body temporarily. A poison from a plant that she had been growing in the backyard in preparation for this very moment. Now I was really confused when this first aired. I had to watch it a second time. Yes, I watched this entire series twice over. So the plant she was growing was aconite and she said that she killed her husband because he ingested too high of a dose, but this time she perfected it and she lets it absorb through the skin. She did this by placing it on like the knife handle, I guess, so that if Joe went to reach for a weapon, he would be doing it to himself. Does that make sense? I don't know if I'm the only stupid person who didn't get that, but you know, that's what happened. Now Joe is paralyzed. He cannot do anything. He cannot say anything. He can blink his eyes and that's about it. So while Joe is paralyzed, Love takes his phone and texts Mariette. She asks her to come over ASAP. She also has to be a hashtag girl boss and drop off some cupcakes for work. So she dips out for a little bit. While she's away, Matthew, the husband of the slain Natalie, sneaks into the Quinn Goldberg house because he's suspicious, and rightfully so. He sees Joe, and through some blinking Morse code shit, Joe gets him to look at his phone and his recent search history. He sees the hospital Joe searched for to bring Theo to, and somehow Matthew understands this and leaves Joe to die. I get it. I get it, Matthew. I I probably would too after what you've been through. So he just leaves to find Theo. Oh my God, my ankle and my foot fell asleep. This is so bizarre. I need better ways to make my foot wake up because everything I do is not working. Should I pour Gatorade on it? You think that'll work? Electrolytes. Nope, that didn't work. I've had a little bit of cold medicine too, so. Love comes home just in time for Marianne's arrival. She plans on killing her, but also in another rare moment of empathy, when Marianne's daughter comes in to use the restroom, Love tells Marianne all about Joe, warns her to run away, and lets her free. Love plots hard, but Joe plots harder and has been aware of Love's antics the whole time. He looked up what she was planting when she was doing her gardening, realized it was a type of poison, aconite, as I previously mentioned, and immediately figured out anecdotes to cover his ass. He pumped himself with adrenaline, the anecdote, before his dinner with love in anticipation of her knowing exactly what was going on and in turn reversed the paralyzation quite quickly. He kills love and frames it as a murder-suicide. How? By cutting off two of his toesies to make it look like she went all Mrs. Lovett's meat pies on his ass. After setting his home ablaze... He leaves Henry on the doorstep of a responsible, loving couple who have been having issues adopting, realizing he isn't fit to be a dad. Probably an astute observation. He then runs off to Paris in an attempt to find where Marianne ran off to. That's what I assumed anyway, because she's like French, I think. But the real heroes, the real romance, the real triumph of love was Carrie and Sherry. They are the real love story we should all strive for. Not only did they strengthen their love inside a fucking cage where they shat in buckets and one shot an ear off the other, they also figured out that the Quinn Goldbergs didn't trust one another and they must have a key hidden in the cage somewhere. They tear the inventory of the cage apart, find the key, and escape to become TED Talk heroes and relationship experts who wrote a book on a radical couples therapy revolving around being locked in a cage together. 
one exciting thing we learned when season three of You came out is that we would certainly get a season four. And here are some theories I have for season four. Love is alive and managed to escape somehow. Why do I think that? I have no idea how, but I only suspect this because she's pregnant and never told Joe. It never came up aside from her looking at baby names. Also, Theo is alive and knows about love killing Natalie and knows that Joe isn't much better as far as murdering goes, and he's probably the father of this child. There's a storyline there, and if you knows how to do one thing right, it's a fucking juicy storyline. I don't think they're leaving that behind. Ellie is in Sarasota this season, and she wasn't featured at all, as I mentioned, so I'm sure she will have some sort of appearance in season four. Now, she's in Sarasota, but the news of this could potentially hit the rest of the country. I mean, the TED Talks are all over the country, so maybe she watched Sherry and Carrie's TED Talk. You know, these things get around. And Ellie, if I'm not mistaken, only knows Joe Goldberg as Will, whatever his last name was from last season. So when she sees Joe Goldberg look like Will Buckenheim, Fortenheim, somethingheim, Bettelheim, I think it's Will Bettelheim, she's going to realize that these are the same guy. I don't know where that information will take her, but I'm sure we will see her. If not, I will be very upset. My final theory is kind of a far-fetched one, but it's one I've been hanging on to since season one, okay? Let me have it. Joe is in Paris, and Peach Salinger's family has a home in Paris. That's where her and Beck were going to escape at the end of season one. And we know that the Salinger family is very suspicious and has a private investigator on the case. And hello, the fucking pee in the jar or the vase from season one. That's coming back to Joe. I'm telling you, that will be his downfall. I know it. Something is going to happen. The Salingers are going to be in Paris or, or something. We will see Salingers in season four. Mark my words. I actually really liked this season. Two was definitely my favorite season of the entire series because you just cannot beat that twist. I'm sorry. They will never top that twist. And I'm really excited to binge watch season four in one day, just like I did with this season. But I know I'll have to wait a million and a half years. On to the morning show. We have quite a bit to catch up on, but I'm not going to do like a wicked deep dive like I did for you. We'll be here all day. I'm just going to share some of my thoughts thus far. Right from episode one, the season seemed very messy and all over the place, which to be fair, I think may be purposeful. It's a havoc filled atmosphere. I get it. But I didn't enjoy the first few episodes and it's just because I don't like what they've done to certain characters. Bradley Jackson, for example, has suddenly done a 180 and is even more unlikable, but not in the way that makes sense for me. Maybe it's just me, but before when she was unlikable, it was because she had something to prove. She wasn't being contrarian just to be fucking contrarian. She had stories and messages she wanted to get across. And this season, she just seems like a fucking brat. Again, that is probably purposeful. I'm sure they put a lot of thought into these characters. The Mitch character I am on the fence with, I think I lean more towards liking what they've done with him because it's almost like a breath of fresh air. He's finally understanding how he was so very wrong, even though like little too fucking late Mitch, like Hannah's dead. I don't like that I like him. And I know that's purposeful and complex writing, which I love and I can appreciate. 
I also understand why he's in Italy story-wise, mid-pandemic-wise. It's going to be interesting, but it makes it so messy. It feels so far apart. And I don't like his storyline past his recognition of his own selfish and diabolical behavior. Chip seems to be much flatter on purpose, I know. And I know we're halfway through the season, but I don't want nice Chip. I want anxious, angry, every other word is fuck Chip. I want season one Chip back. And I'm hoping this Friday he'll do a fucking 180 and become that again. He's too peaceful. He's too zen. He does like yoga and shit, I feel like. Yanku is whatever. He's always been annoying. And this season he's even more annoying. I had zero expectations, but I'm so glad that his lady friend Claire is gone. That girl irritated me beyond fucking words. I literally would fast forward through scenes of her just so I didn't have to hear that piercing voice and irritating dialogue. She was such a bad character. I think they realized that and I think that's why they moved on. Laura is so great. I love a likable misunderstood bitch. She's relatable and I believe the actress's name is Juliana Margiles and she is a hell of an actress. And I feel the same way about Maggie Brenner. I actually don't think there is anything cold about either of them. I think for Maggie Brenner and for Laura, they're very girl power, but they keep it on the DL to manipulate dumb men and the dumb public. Maggie especially, she needs to sell a message and she knows she needs to do it with a sprinkle of scandal whipped cream so people will be enticed. I think both of them are very intelligent women and I think it's very realistic the way they do things. Love both of them. Mia is same old Mia, just more confident and in control. And I love that for her. I want to see more of her. I'm sure we will. There's a new character, Stella, and she is the new head of news and is the young, hip, new blood. I like her and I like her fashion. And I think she's one step ahead of everyone and everything. And I love whatever it is she's plotting with Daniel. I have no idea what it is. But Stella yelled some sort of code word or code line and Daniel started singing and dancing off script. I was waiting for another season one, we've been lying to you moment, but it never came. I can assume that this is a stunt to get his name trending, I think. I don't know. I have no idea what it could possibly mean, but it seems to be a big deal. And I'm excited to learn what it is. I'm, you know, on the edge of my seat. Speaking of Daniel, I'm so glad we get to see more of him because I have been dying for more of Daniel since he went on that rant about the Gilmore Girls musical. Absolutely iconic. He's having his moment this season, finally after being quarantined and pushed to his limits in the first few episodes. Justice for Daniel, Jennifer Aniston. She absolutely kills it this season. She has so many layers and Alex Levy is so complex. She still feels torn between love and guilt and shame. She doesn't feel like she deserves her feminist icon image because she remained complicit for so long with Mitch. She's uncomfortable with the new label stamped on her because she knows it's not the truth. And there's something so beautifully fresh and honest about that. She's funny as hell too. She's a lot like Mia as far as confidence goes as well this season. She was almost fake confident in season one. And this season, her confidence seems 
really genuine, even though she's losing her fucking mind. It's hard to explain. She just has this air about her. But the real star of this season is Billy Crudup. He shines this season. He was so calm and cool and collected in season one, like a duck on the water. And this season we get to peek under the water where the duck is paddling his feet like a madman trying to stay afloat for dear life. That's exactly what Corey is doing. He's maniacal and losing his hold on everything and we get to see him fall apart and we get to see him attempt to pick up the pieces and put them together with duct tape. We also see how deeply he feels for Bradley even though it's never been said and Bradley remains clueless. Story-wise, the season is a lot to keep up with, and like I said, it's messy and at times quite boring. Season one was exciting, and things all matched up beautifully, like every piece of the puzzle was scattered across the basement floor. And with each episode, the pieces moved closer together, revealing little bits of the full picture. This season, the puzzle pieces have been run through the shredder and thrown across the basement, and nothing seems to be coming together. Things feel like they are being pushed farther apart. With every episode. Again, maybe this is all purposeful. We're about halfway through the season and things should be coming together by now. So my expectations are even higher for the remainder of the season. I like the Stella angle and I like Corey losing his fucking marbles. I love that. Aside from that, I am bored. I don't buy into the Bradley Laura romance shit. It seems like pandering, like a last minute writing thought to be hip and cool, which is fine. Whatever. Laura carries the storyline. She really does. Such a great actress. And I love Reese Witherspoon. She's one of my favorites, but I wasn't buying it. Maybe I'm not supposed to. I like the slow buildup of Corey being torn between his job and his love for Bradley, knowing he can't keep his job and be successful without hurting her. Corey finds out about Bradley and Laura and is devastated, beyond devastated. Alex is beyond stressed about Maggie Brenner's book coming out which is a tell-all that is seemingly every angle of the Mitch Kessler morning show debacle. She's terrified Maggie will share that Alex and Mitch were intimate. It's eating her away to the point of physical pain, and it doesn't help when she sees the cover mock-up that was like bedside tales or wrong side of the bed, I think, with the picture of Mitch and Alex. So yeah, Maggie is heavy-handed with that enticement whipped cream. But I stand by what I said. I think that she has more important points to get to within the book that she just has to trick people into reading with scandal. There's a big storyline revolving around Hannah Schoenfeld's death. Her father is suing UBA. And because of this, the company or Fred Micklin, I can't quite figure out who, but both benefit, is planning a smear campaign against Hannah to make her seem like a drug abusing sex fiend monster. Corey travels in secret to warn her father about this and to urge him to take the settlement money so that the smear campaign stops. Unfortunately, he doesn't budge. It's really odd. I don't know why why he wouldn't. I think he's more justice driven, not money driven. But Corey is devastated when Hannah's father doesn't comply. We also learn from Laura a bit about Alex's unsavory past. Her drive to get to the top made a lot of enemies, including Bradley's girlfriend, Laura. Laura believes Alex told the press about her sexuality in a time that was far from accepting and was ultimately the cause for her being pushed out of the network. What hurt the most was when Alex completely ignored her after the fact. That seemed to really sting Laura. The lack of empathy and the dehumanizing of that kind of behavior. It's, it's really not nice. 
Bradley's main goal this season seems to be getting an anchor position on the nightly news to get more serious news out there rather than being Little Miss Sunshine on morning news, but I don't think she's going to get that. At the end of the episode, Ghosts, in one of the greatest scenes from Billy Crudup, his character Corey asks Bradley in an extremely cryptic manner if he should save Hannah Schoenfeld's reputation at any cost. Bradley, of course, says yes, of course, oh my god, yes. Unbeknownst to her, this means putting a more salacious story out there, and that story being the bubbly, all-American morning anchor being in a secret gay love affair with none other than Laura Peterson. Overall, I know I didn't say the best of things about this season of The Morning Show, but I have so much faith in the show that I think that it's going to all come together and make sense. And I really enjoyed the latest episode. The parts of the show that I'm enjoying, I'm really enjoying. I'm not beaten and broken about it yet, okay? I have faith. So yes, I would say I'm enjoying it. Now, I really wanted to quickly talk about The Guilty because I saw it's getting so much hate. If you don't know, The Guilty is about a troubled police detective demoted to 911 operator duty and he's scrambling to save a distressed caller during a harrowing day of revelations and reckonings. It's a remake of the 2018 Danish film of the same name. I have to say... I'm not going to go into great detail because I really want you to see it and make your own judgment. But I really enjoyed this movie. I understand the hate though. I get it. It's not for everyone. The best way I can explain it without spoiling it is you are dropped into the story and it's abrupt. It is, that's the only word for it. The beginning, the ending is abrupt. It's extraordinarily uncomfortable. It's really anxiety ridden if you are really into it. If you're not into it, you know, obviously just flip it off. But if you're in it, you're fucking in it. And I I absolutely was in it. I usually am doing like six things at once while I'm watching something, but I was completely drawn in, literally sitting at the edge of my seat watching every second play out. I was not expecting the twisties and the turnies that happened at all, but overall, I think it was a simple, unique story done very well that doesn't fit the mold of what we're used to with movies. Now for a simple, unique story done horribly, horribly, horribly horribly wrong Diana the Musical the filmed performance of Diana the Musical was released through Netflix on October 1st with its Broadway opening night scheduled to be November 17th yes this is a Broadway musical they're not all amazing a musical about the well-loved British royal was anticipated by many in hopes of putting the former princess of Wales's story in a new light however it was an absolute nightmare I want to start by saying the singing was not the issue the acting was not the issue per se. The issue was the writing. And let me give you some sprinkles of said abominable writing. Abominable. Abominable. You know the word I'm trying to say. Horrible. Excruciating writing. Let's talk about the lyrics to the dress, which refers to Diana's iconic revenge dress as a, quote, feckity, 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 feck you dress, okay? Which is sung over and over and over and over again to the point where it rivals Baby Shark in annoyance. The song Here Comes James Hewitt in the second act was super fucking vulgar, which didn't really match the vibe of the story and it seemed pointless. A half-naked James is introduced as a group of women danced around him, fawning over his handsomeness. 
this, right? Then James and Diana have a lovely conversation. There's only one type of lesson I offer. Riding lessons, James says. Diana pauses to eye him from head to toe as the ensemble sings his name. I assumed your husband gives you riding lessons, James continues, to which Diana replies. He's tried. He's not very good. Perhaps he just doesn't have the right horse, James says. Diana looks at him, smiling. And do you have the right horse? Your royal highness, I think you'd adore my horse. James grins. This is a Broadway musical. This is not some fucking rando fan fiction you found in your grandmother's trunk. That exchange is exactly where I want to end my thoughts on this dumpster fire. The worst shit I have ever seen on Netflix. Truly. This actually made me wonder if for my end of the year best of 2021, should I do a worse too? Like, should I do a proper best and worst titles I've seen all year? I have to tell you, I watched another really fucking disappointing title yesterday. I'm not going to get super into it, but Antebellum, man, I was so disappointed. It had all the makings to be fucking amazing. I was ready to be rocked by this movie. Diana the Musical, horrible. Antebellum, horrible. We'll talk about it in December. Now let's get into some streaming news, starting with Netflix, of course. Big Mouth season five is coming. We got to see a trailer that announced season five will be coming November 5th. Not too far off at all. I think I can hold off till then. And we will be getting what looks like a puppet style Christmas special. I'm sold on everything Big Mouth. You guys know that. So I'm in it. I'm in it. I don't really love the puppeteering of it all, but I think it'll be really funny. I can't remember if I talked about this on the pod yet. I know I posted the news when it broke on the pod's Instagram, but Netflix has given a formal series green light to that 90s show, a follow-up to the hit sitcom That 70s Show. Kurtwood Smith and Deborah Jo Rupp will anchor the spinoff, reprising their respective roles as Red Foreman and Kitty Foreman. They will executive produce that 90s show alongside its creators, that 70s show alum, Greg Mettler, who serves as showrunner, that 70s show co-creators, Bonnie Turner and Terry Turner, and their daughter, Lindsay Turner. So some fresh new blood in there. I was curious if this meant that it would come back to Netflix, even though I bought the entire series on DVD for a wicked deal last year, by the way. Or was it the year before? I think it was the year before. I was so distraught because they took it off mid-watch. Like I was in the middle of watching an episode and it was gone, gone. But yeah, keep an eye out on Best Buy this holiday season, specifically online. I got the whole series on sale for $30. That 70s show departed Netflix globally in September 2020. And now well over a year after its release, it's still yet to stream anywhere else. The show was popular on Netflix, but dramatically dived in popularity after its departure from Netflix. Nielsen reported that in 2020, the series was ranked as the third most watched sitcom on Netflix. IMDb's Movie Meter tracked the show in the top 200 to 300 range for the duration of being on Netflix. And after leaving, it dived to around a thousand. Obviously that's going to happen. It's not streaming anywhere. So that information doesn't surprise me. There are a few reasons why streamers may not be picking up the series. One possible reason, similar to Roseanne and the Cosby show, it could be seen as problematic on a platform. The show's reputation has been tarnished given Danny Masterson's court battle 
battles which have been ongoing and additionally in the age of mergers and acquisitions in the streaming space it could just be that the show is being held back for a massive acquisition although nothing has been reported about this to even suggest that it's happening honestly though I don't think Netflix would let that opportunity slide it must be in the contract like hey if you want us to green light the spinoff that will make you big money and guarantee viewership and a revival to your dying company Casey Werner who by the way does own Cosby and Roseanne and shit like that I say shit but I loved both of those shows as a kid and I still watch Roseanne from time to time admittedly but aside from that 70s and 80s show which was a failed spinoff if you didn't know they own the rights to shit like Sybil and Grounded for Life okay they need Netflix more than Netflix needs them I think that that 70s show will premiere with that 90s show back on Netflix the youngest Covey sister from to all the boys I've loved before will be getting her own spinoff series according to Logline Exo Kitty will follow the titular teen a self-proclaimed love expert as she heads abroad with romance on the mind however when she moves halfway across the world to reunite with her long-distance boyfriend she'll soon realize that relationships are a lot more complicated when it's your own heart on the line Exo Kitty will feature 10 half-hour episodes and a release date has yet to be announced only have one little piece of Hulu news FX's adaptation of why the last man based on the 2005 comic has been canceled the announcement was made by showrunner Eliza Clark who said that FX on Hulu wouldn't be going forward with a second season the series which stars Ben Schnetzer's York Brown the only cis man in the world to not fall victim to sudden mass death premiered last month to a mostly mixed reception in her statement Clark expressed her gratitude to the cast and crew plus FX quote I've never in my life been more committed to a story and there's so much more story left to tell at the end of her tweet she promises that she'll do her best to bring the show to another platform with two episodes left of Wise first and currently only season Clark insists that fans should continue to watch saying that they're epic and if they watch and their friends watch the chances of keeping the show alive increase there's also the hashtag why lives on which the creator wants to keep going to keep the show alive which worked fairly recently for manifest so we will see just how much the public is interested in keeping why the last man alive now for the bulk of the news coming from hbo thanks to dc fandom at dc fandom hbo max announced that it has renewed both doom patrol and titans for their fourth seasons this news comes as both are airing their third seasons both series originally premiered on dc universe before making the move to hbo max also at the virtual event fans got a look at a mid-season trailer for doom patrol and a clip from the titans finale doom patrol reimagines one of dc's most beloved group of superheroes who all suffered horrible accidents that gave them superhuman abilities but also left them scarred and disfigured they're part support group and part superhero team and they fight for a world that wants nothing to do with them dc fandom also showed a sneak peek at batgirl leslie grace will star as barbara gordon with bad boys for life breakout jacob scipio in warner brothers and dc films batgirl jk simmons is also on board to reprise his role of commissioner gordon the film will be on hbo max marking one of the first major dc properties to debut exclusively on the streamer while plot details are under wraps it is known that barbara gordon the daughter of commissioner gordon will be the character behind the cape in this version gordon is the most established version of the batgirl character and was first introduced in 1961 as betty kane details 
behind who Scipio is playing are also unknown. There is also no release date yet, but I'm thinking this one won't be out till 2022. According to Deadline, HBO Max closed a deal to bring DC origin series Pennyworth to its platform for a third season. The series, which aired two seasons on Epics, has been renewed for a third season and will make the move to Warner Media digital platform in 2022. It comes after Deadline revealed that Pennyworth producer Warner Brothers TV was in talks to bring the show over to its sibling streamer. The deal also includes the first two seasons of the Batman Butler prequel launching on the service early next year. Pennyworth follows Alfred Pennyworth, played by Jack Bannon, a former British SAS soldier who forms a security company in 1960s London and goes to work with young billionaire Thomas Wayne, played by Ben Aldridge, before he becomes Bruce Wayne's father. The third season begins after a five-year time jump. The Civil War is over and a cultural revolution has changed the world for better or worse, ushering in a new age of superheroes and supervillains. John Cena's Peacemaker is getting a spin-off series. It will be written and directed by the legend James Gunn. The series will explore the origins of the character and his subsequent missions. Cena first portrayed the character, a nationalist killer who loves peace so much that he doesn't care how many men, women, and children he has to kill to get it. In Gunn's The Suicide Squad, which premiered in August, Peacemaker, real name Christopher Smith, joined the Suicide Squad and was badly injured in the fight with blood sport played by Idris Elba. The film's post-credit sequence revealed that Peacemaker was saved and extracted to the United States. I'm sure Peacemaker will be as violent as he is funny in this spinoff series. Cobra Kai star Zolo Mariduena will star as Jamie Reyes in Blue Beetle. With new concept art showing him armored up, he looks incredibly accurate sporting the yellow eyes, blue costume, and stingers of the DC comic book counterpart. While not much has yet been revealed about Blue Beetle, we do know that the project will focus on Jamie Reyes, the third person to take up the Blue Beetle mantle in the DC movie. Created in 2005 by comic book superstars Keith Giffen and Cully Hamner with Hollywood screenwriter John Rogers, the relaunch of the character with Jamie Reyes, a Mexican-American American teenager under the blue armor proved to be one of DC's most successful new launches in decades, with Reyes going on to feature in multiple comic book runs and animated shows, as well as a popular live action one-off on Smallville. Much like prior Blue Beetles, Reyes gains his powers after discovering a sacred scarab, which attaches to his back and morphs into a battle suit, allowing him to fight crime and travel in space. The Jamie Reyes version of Blue Beetle remains one of DC's most popular characters, and with the character's intriguing backstory, alongside a visually interesting set of powers, the character will surely be a welcome addition to the live-action DC universe. Production is expected to start in early 22, and that concept are also debuted at DC Fandom. On to a sprinkle of Paramount Plus news. Paramount comedy The Lost City will now open three weeks earlier than expected. The studio announced that its release date moves from April 15th to March 25th, 2022. The Paramount feature, formerly titled The Lost City of D, follows a reclusive novelist, Sandra Bullock, on her tour with her cover model, Channing Tatum, of course, watching as the pair get swept up in a kidnapping attempt that lands them in a cutthroat jungle adventure. It's said to be in the same vein of Robert Zemeckis's classic Romancing the Stone. I cannot wait for that. That sounds super funny. I love Sandra Bullock. So I will be waiting patiently until the spring of 2022. 
On to Disney Plus news. Disney Plus is developing an entire show about Agatha from WandaVision. It's the first spinoff from Marvel's new slate of television shows. As of now, there's no word yet on what it will be about. Obviously, we know it will center on Agatha. And the only person we know for sure that will be in it, because duh, Agatha, is Katherine Hahn, who plays the evil witch. Other than that, we know nothing, but I'm still excited. Disney Plus has also unveiled plans to launch Marvel Studios' Hawkeye series with two episodes upon its November 24th debut. After the debut, subsequent episodes will be out each Wednesday. Hawkeye is an original new series set in post-blip New York City where former Avenger Clint Barton, aka Hawkeye, has a seemingly simple mission, get back to his family for Christmas. But when a threat from his past shows up, Hawkeye reluctantly teams up with Kate Bishop, played by the iconic Haley Steinfeld, a 22-year-old skilled archer and his biggest fan, to unravel a a criminal conspiracy. The last episode will premiere on Wednesday, December 22nd, and the following Wednesday, the 29th, The Book of Boba Fett will premiere. So we have a busy, busy holiday season, folks. Thank you so much for listening. I appreciate you so, so much. I really do. Today, I want to spotlight Adelita's Apparel. Adelita's Apparel is a little shop owned by two sisters located in Los Angeles with the goal to encourage people to be unapologetically themselves. Not only do they combine their culture into their products, but they also use their products to advocate for social issues that are important for them. Some of the ways they advocate for social issues is by selling products to fund DACA applications and buying. You can check out their website, adelitasapparel.com, and you can also check them out on Instagram. Their handle is also adelitasapparel. If you'd like to follow the pod on Instagram, it's NCQH Podcast. My personal Instagram is L-E-A-A underscore M-A-R-Z, like Lee-A with two A's, Mars with a Z. If you didn't know, I am not only a podcaster, but I'm a writer. I have a book of art and poetry titled Myocardium that shows a very different side of myself. If you'd like to check that out it's available on amazon and the link is in my personal instagram bio it comes in two formats one being the highest quality paperback with premium ink to really let the art shine for $18.99 and i understand with shipping that can be quite a bit of coin so i also have a mobile version available with just the poetry for only $2.99 It is available through the Kindle app, which is free to download on all devices. And if you have the Kindle Unlimited program, my book is actually free of charge. Thank you again. Stay caffeinated, stay streaming, stay strong. (laughs) 